I've had a couple of opportunities recently to give defense or give explanation for for things that I believe. One of those was my ordination. And as we think about those things that we hold dear, those, those truths that we hold, it begs the question, or should, why does it matter? Why is it important what we believe? The world certainly wants to know. When the world looks at the Lord's churches and, and sees, hopefully, that they're different, that they're set apart somehow, they don't engage in the world like normal people. I put normal in quotes. But there's just something about them. Why, why is it important? Why is it important what we believe? And I want to talk about that a little bit this morning, but, but the core of it is found in, in Romans 1 and verse 16. I'll be in several places there, but if you want to turn there, you can, or if not, I'll just read it. Romans 1 and 16 says, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now that word gospel, if you look it up in a Greek dictionary, it'll give several different it'll give several different definitions. One of those is that it is good news. That's the one that we hear about. And then uh, a slightly broader or slightly not as broad definition is that it is what Jesus did. But the the most accurate definition that I saw was that since in the, in the aftermath of Jesus' ministry here on earth, the term gospel has come to frame everything about Jesus. What he did, who he is, what he taught, and what he established. That gets to be pretty broad. Because if we consider the gospel everything that Jesus taught, well then that includes the entirety of scripture. Because Jesus himself said, I came not to replace the law or to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. In fact, he said, heaven and earth shall not pass away, or not one jot or tittle of law shall pass away before heaven and earth pass away. So the entirety of the Old Testament too, a lot of people think that the gospel is the New Testament. But it is not. The gospel is the entirety of Scripture. In fact, we kind of also see that underscored in Hebrews at the very beginning when it says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. That's the Old Testament. God spake in times past by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. Jesus is the culmination of the gospel. But it's not, I shouldn't say it this way, it's, it's not that Jesus' life and ministry is the gospel unto itself. The, entire, the entirety of Scripture, the entire history of the world, the entire history of creation, the entire 
unveiling of God's plan throughout all of history all points to Jesus. It is all the gospel. So if we look at the gospel that way, now let's look at what that says. Why is it important what we believe? Because if we believe the gospel, if we believe the entirety of scripture, that it all points to Jesus and God's master plan in all of it. The gospel, the gospel is the power of God. It is the power of God unto salvation. Yes, it does say that. But is there anything more important than salvation? And I don't mean for me. Now, I'm thankful that God chose to save me, and I know all of you feel the same way. But too often, in too many of our churches, sentimentality creeps in, and we tend to think that God saved me for my sake. But like we said in Sunday school and in our prayer time, God doesn't need me. I don't help God out. God had no need for me. He didn't need to save me for my sake. He saved me for his own sake. So that number one, well, it's not number one. These aren't in order of importance, or maybe they're in reverse importance. So that he could use me as a vessel and a channel. But most importantly is that in saving me, in that miraculous work of a holy, 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 holy God, being able to forgive a miserable sinner highlights his incredible mercy, highlights his incredible long-suffering, The fact that he was able to be just in doing so because of Jesus' great sacrifice highlights his justice, highlights his, that his wrath for sin is satisfied. All of it highlights and glorifies God. Because he saved me, God is glorified, magnified, and lifted up. Possibly, probably, let's just say definitely, more than any other act that he has done. Yes, he flung stars into space. He spoke worlds into existence. He reached down and created man with his own hand. Out of nothing, he created a universe. But yet God, as holy as he is, can forgive sin and reconcile a sinner. Jesus himself said something along those lines when a a man came to be healed and they said, what power do you have to heal? Or actually, he offered to forgive a man's sin. What power do you have to forgive sin? And he said, is it easier to forgive sin? Say words. Or to heal a man, which is something no mere mortal man can do. But so that you will know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin, man, get up off your bed and walk. But with that, Jesus was highlighting that I have great power and I have authority to forgive sin. And which one is harder? He's insinuating that it's harder to forgive sin, but he can do that too. 
the gospel that led to my salvation is the power of God. It is important what we believe because it is the power of God. So what we believe is what we teach. And Paul in Galatians talks about those who come and preach another gospel and he then throws in the aside and says, which is no gospel. Because when we teach anything other than the true gospel, there is no power of God unto salvation or unto anything else except maybe to tickle our ears. It is important what we believe and what we hold to as the truth that is revealed in Scripture, illuminated to our hearts by the Holy Spirit because it's the power of God. So we can read through our articles of faith or any of the other documents that we have, the commentaries, past sermons that great preachers have preached, and we can see these doctrines lined out But why do they matter? They matter because they're truth. And they are the power of God. I'm not going to outline all of the articles of faith. Honestly, I couldn't from memory if I wanted to. But that was part of, of what I've been questioned on and the opportunity I've had to explain some things is is it's kind of tell me your views about this and it would list one of the articles of faith and what a privilege it is certainly a responsibility a sacred responsibility to convey truth but what a privilege it is also to be able to explain that based on scripture based on what God has given us in his written word that's been preserved through the ages, but also, and even more importantly, through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit within my heart to teach me that God has shown me and is showing me, continues to show me until I die and and, am in this body and, and am in his presence for eternity. I will still not fully understand the entirety of the gospel. But what I have is the power of God. And how do I know that? Because it was enough to save my soul. And for those of us who've been saved, we've been shown enough of the gospel, enough of that power of God under the salvation of our souls. And that's why the gospel is precious to us. That's why it's important that we know what we trust. So if we cherry pick parts of it, if we just take this thing that Jesus said in one sermon at one point and try to distort that to to make a point, then we're preaching a gospel that is no gospel. And we've lost the power of God. Because the gospel isn't this piece that you cherry pick out of it. The gospel is the entirety. Now granted, no sermon, no service can adequately convey the entirety of the gospel. And that's why God gives preachers a message for a day, for a time, for a season. Because he knows, he knows the hearts of those who are in the congregation. He knows who's going to hear and what kernel of truth it is that they need for that day to open their understanding just a little bit wider 
so that they can receive a little more power. Maybe power under their salvation, but maybe power toward a little more peace, toward reconciliation. But the gospel is the power of God. If there is no other reason that's important, that's paramount. How do we cheapen the power of God? But that's for us. That's for us individually. But we also need to understand that it's important to, it's important to his churches. Mm-hmm. See, in the, as I said, the gospel is the entirety of history, the entire unveiling of his plan. And everything in the Old Testament, including where God said, worship me this way. Build your tabernacle thus. Okay, if you insist on building a temple, build it this way. Worship me this way. All of that was God painting a picture of this is how I will be worshipped. This is what it will be like with my son. It's all a picture. And in the temple, and in the tabernacle, that was where the presence of God dwelt. Physical manifestation, the Shekinah glory of God, dwelt in the temple, such that no man save the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies lest he die. And then only once a year. Imagine the power of God present with his physical manifestation of his glory. And that was a picture of what would become the Lord's church. Because see, when when we are saved, the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, comes and lives within us. We know that to be true. But we also know that Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of you. And he was speaking about his ecclesia. He was speaking about his local visible church. That when you meet together, my presence is with you. When you meet together under my terms, as my people... My presence is with you. Just as the presence of God was manifest in the temple, the presence of God is manifest in the Holy Spirit within the Lord's church. But what is the church? See, it's easy to say that, and and there are organizations throughout the world and throughout history that will call themselves churches and claim to have the presence of God because they claim that promise. But we know that a church is comprised of people who share a common experience of saving knowledge. Who also share a common experience of baptism. Baptism. And are covenanted together 
with that. Anything short of that is not a church. The Lord didn't promise his presence except to his church. Why is it important what we believe about the church? Well, the church is part of the gospel. Our ecclesiology is part of the gospel. It's part of the plan that was unveiled and unfolded through time, given to us in pictures through the tabernacle and the temple, and then explained in wholeness through Jesus when he instituted and constituted his church. The church, the nature of the church, the composition of the church, it's all part of the gospel. Therefore, it's part of the power of God. Only a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ can experience the fullness of the presence of God manifest in our midst. And so have the benefit of the power of God amongst us. It is incredibly important what we believe. Because the gospel, including the church, is the power of God. And sometimes there are churches that they tend to veer from the truth. We've seen that before too. Ezekiel got to see the glory of God depart from the temple. What a sad, sad vision. I mean, we can't imagine what that must have looked like, but especially to a priest (coughs) who's looking at the temple and sees the manifestation of the glory of God lift from the temple because of the systematic disobedience and the complete lack of truth. Lift from the temple and depart, never to return. That was a picture, too, for what will happen when churches fail to see the importance of what we believe and begin compromising. Now, do we necessarily see the glory of God and a manifestation, physical manifestation, lift up off of a church and leave? No, but Jesus told us in Revelation what happens to churches we mentioned it in Sunday school that lest I remove your candlestick what we believe is important because it's the power of God and if we ever begin to compromise that we risk losing not only the power of God but also his presence It's also important because as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we we have a tendency to want to help him out. We've laughed about that and talked about that several times. But the truth is we do have a commission. He did give his church a commission. Sometimes we get a little overzealous and we want to go find ways to fulfill that commission instead of allowing him to lead us into fulfilling that commission. 
But we want to be, even in our error sometimes, we want to be true to what he has asked us to be. It's often with really good intent. But good intentions can only take you so far. You know, the, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. You see pictures, and for the longest time, I thought of this as being a huge discourse by Jesus speaking to multitudes on the mountaintop. You see paintings of it where, you know, there's Jesus and there's like a bazillion people and somehow I guess God gave him a megaphone voice and he's able to speak to all of them. But if you read the very beginning of Matthew 5, Matthew 4 ends with multitudes following him and then in Matthew 5 he says, And seeing the multitudes, he, Jesus, went up into a mountain. He left them. Seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain and when he was set... His disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. The Sermon on the Mount, all these sometimes very confusing, very often taken out of context, but altogether counter to human nature teachings that, that Jesus gave, were to his church. They were to the church, so it was to the church. Maybe he hadn't instituted it and given them power yet, but still, these were his disciples. These were his church. And he told them, you're the salt of the earth. Now, what does what does salt do? Salt gives flavor, yeah, that, that. Sometimes you eat something, you just have to put some salt on it. But more importantly in that time, the thing that made salt such a valuable commodity wasn't that it tasted good. What made salt such a precious commodity in that time was that it was a preservative. It stopped decay. It halted putrefaction. So people could have their meat, salt it, and keep it. That made it valuable. So Jesus, who also came and said, you're the light of the world, after saying, I am the light of the world, he then turns around and says, you are the light of the world. We're also taught in Scripture that, that after Jesus is gone, physically from the earth, that you, the church, are the body of Christ. Well, I want us to think about this. Back in, in Hebrews 3, uh, you don't have to turn there, but after he says, uh, Hath in these last days spoken unto us by a son whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Upholding all things by the word of his power. Preserving, maintaining, keeping all things as they are by the word of his power. Sin, if left rampant, would destroy this world in zero time. There is a restraining power of the Holy Spirit at work in the world today that still restrains people who 
they don't know they're being restrained. But sin is being held at bay. Yes, Jesus upholds, maintains, keeps all things by the word of his power. And he did so when he was here too. But then he says, you're the salt of the earth. You are the preservative. You are the channel through which I will keep a restraint. You are the channel by which we will slow or halt the decay process. The church is the channel by which the putrefaction that sin would level on the world is slowed or halted. Because in his physical absence, we're told that we, as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, are his body. We are his body. We have the gospel, which is the power of God. We have his presence. It is important what we believe about the gospel and about the nature of the church because it is only in keeping that that we can maintain our role as salt. As a preservative in our communities. As restraint against sin. As a guard of holiness against all that is unholy that would come upon us. I may be going too far with those, that, that's not the main thrust of what I had today, but I hope that I'm at least painting a picture. I know it's not entirely clear, but what really gets to me is after that, he says, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. How does salt lose its flavor? We, we think of table salt. And, I mean, is there, a, is there a shelf life on table salt? You get a big can of Morton's, and, you know, six years later, 16 years later, you can still use it. It's still salt. There's no shelf life, really, on, on salt in the refined form that we have it. But in those times, it would have been a natural resource. It would have been mined as a mineral of sort, which means it would have been mixed in with, with other elements. And that is the kind of dilution that can cause issues. So I, I won't go into the site that I saw, but it brought the picture in mind that if you have a... Have you ever been to the beach, spent some time in the ocean, and then you get out, and you don't shower off, because you're doing other things and you sun dry, what do you notice on your skin? White powdery substance? That white powdery substance is the residue of the salt in the water. But if you could collect all of that white powdery substance, now I'm not saying it would taste very good, it would still be bitter, but you know what it's not anymore? It's not salt. You can't collect that white powder and then use it to preserve food. You can't use it to season anything. It has lost its saltiness because it got diluted. It got diluted or it got mixed in with uh, their stories of, of 
people who would try to keep salt in, in the old times in, in, in the Middle East and they'd keep it on an earthen floor. And over enough time, enough of the earth, enough of the earth gets, gets mixed in and leaches the saltiness out of the salt. It's no longer good for anything. So bringing back around my good intentions that only go so far, sometimes we have really good intentions to be the salt of the earth. We have good intentions to fulfill our commission and and we don't see the harm in a little compromise here or a little nudge there. And basically we're laying our salt on on the earth, letting a little bit of the world into the salt. We begin to dilute it and to water it down. And if we're not careful, if we don't guard what we know is important, if we don't guard our convictions of the gospel, we dilute the salt. And as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can lose our saltiness. And then we're good for nothing but to be thrown out in the street, trodden underfoot. That's that's kind of a dire warning, and, and I don't mean for it to sound dire, but we live in a world of compromise where everyone wants to placate this group or that group. Well, we don't want to talk about blood because that's offensive. But there is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood, we're told, in the gospel. Who cares if it offends? It's the truth. We don't want to talk about sin because that's offensive in some places. They're not, it's not sin, it's, it's a lifestyle choice. Doesn't God want me to be happy? No. Yes, He does, but He wants you to be happy in Him. Not in seeking self. So if we water down our talk on sin so as to not offend then we're diluting the power of the gospel. Because the gospel is that we're all sinners. It doesn't matter what particular sin someone's engaged in, we're all sinners, and sin is an affront to a holy God, and the price will be paid. But the good part of the gospel is the price has been paid if we will surrender And if we will come to Him looking for mercy, but if we're afraid to offend people by talking about their sin, they will never see their need for mercy. They will never see the holiness of a God whom they have affronted. And at that point, we've watered down the gospel, we've lost our saltiness, and we've lost the power of God. We'll compromise our 
styles of worship. I actually don't want to get into that because there are compromises that are harmful and there are compromises that mean nothing. And we get caught up in the ones that mean nothing. Here, we like singing those old songs. Other churches, they like singing newer songs. But as long as the songs lift up the name of Jesus Christ, does it matter? Because guess what? There are churches of the Lord Jesus Christ with more power than I'd say some of us have in Africa, and I bet they don't sing Oh, the Glory Did Roll. They have different songs. They have different instruments. They have different styles of worship. They have different means of giving testimony. Some people dance. Some people shout. Some people testify. Some people cry. Some people pray out loud. Some people pray silently. It doesn't matter. We don't need to get caught up in the stylistic preferences of the way that we worship because every culture, every generation has its own language with which they express themselves to God. But there are stylistic things that we sometimes see that compromise the gospel. I actually don't want to get too much into that. I'm, I'm almost done, but for anyone that, that listens, I hope you'll think about those things and give some thought to, yeah, the way that you worship. That's not really the, the crux of it. I just want us to make sure that we understand that the things that we choose to do, the things that we choose to put our trust in and our faith in, they are important. especially for a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we believe isn't a matter of choice. And it's not a matter of, well, that's just, that's just the way we do things. That's the way I was raised. This is my path to God. There are other paths to God. No, there aren't. There's one truth. There are different ways to worship. I will grant that. There are different ways to pray. But there's only one way to trust the Lord for salvation. There's only one way to surrender your self-will and self-reliance and to recognize the depravity of a sinful condition and to fall on God for mercy. There's only one way. And because there's only one way, there's, and because Jesus set it up this way, there's only one way that Jesus set up his church. And if we don't constitute ourselves that way, if we don't govern ourselves in the way that Jesus intended for his church to be governed, then we're not really a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that flies in the face of a lot of people who may hear this online or who may... In, be in other places and have an ecumenical mindset. But it's just the truth. It's the truth. And it's important that we know that because it's part of the gospel. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe, to them that trust. 
if we compromise, we compromise the power of God. God's power won't be compromised. We don't actually compromise it. We just lose it. He will withdraw his power. He will withdraw his presence. He will remove the candlestick from a congregation that compromises his truth. It's important what we believe. I should say it's important what we believe as one of the Lord's churches. It's not important. There are those in the world who will say, well, it's just important that you believe in something. You've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything or any of those other platitudes. It's not important that you believe in Buddha. What we believe is important. Because what we have as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the truth. We have the gospel. We have the power of God. We have his presence. We have his power. We have his promise that he will be with us. And that as we are faithful to him, he will use us as salt, as light, as missionaries, as preachers, as teachers, as encouragers, as however he deigns to use us, he will use us. But we must be faithful to the gospel. That's why it's important what we believe. So when you go into the world and anyone questions you, well, why does it matter? Because they will. People will get stuck on, on fine doctrinal points, and now there are doctrinal points that, that are central. I mean, they are central. You can't negotiate on those. And then there are doctrinal points that really, they don't matter as much. I mean, post-millennial, pre-millennial, amillennial, depending on whatever you believe, whatever you choose to read in there, Jesus is still coming back and he's still Lord. Whether there's a thousand years before or after or not at all, it doesn't really matter. He's still going to be Lord for eternity. Now, what you do with that, does that cause you to compromise core tenets of the gospel? There are sound churches that are on all three sides of that camp. That maybe we would just disagree with that or we disagree with that, but otherwise they're sound. That's not something I would consider central or, or deal-breaking. But the world will ask when we're so dogmatic about certain things, why does it matter? Why is it so important? Why is it important that, that people give a testimony before they join your church? Why is it important that they be baptized by immersion? Why is it important? Because it's gospel. It's not just tradition. It's gospel. Lord's ordinance was baptism by immersion. All the 
all the first church, they had an experience of salvation. It's important because it's the power of God. It's the gospel. So let's be armed with an answer. They may not like the answer, but that's not up to us. Let God deal with that as he will. We just have to stand by the truth.